Well, good morning, Gospel City. How are we? Oh, man, I was expecting a little bit of a higher pitch with the kids in the room, but it's fine. We'll get there. We'll get there. My name's Tyler Holder. I'm our pastor of men's and young adult discipleship. And if you have your Bible, let me encourage you, make your way over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll be camping out this morning. I want to take a minute and just welcome some special guests in the room. Gospel City Kids, so excited you are here. Are you here this morning? That was your cue to yell, but not like yell VBS yell, just kind of like let us know you're here. Gospel City, welcome. Kids, welcome, welcome. Okay, you know what? It's fine. There's grace for you. There's grace for you. It happens every week. It's all right. Well, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. I hope you have your eyes on a copy of God's Word. This is what God's Word says. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, as we prepare to unpack Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, I just want to begin by asking a simple question. Now, Now, it's a question that has caused a lot of controversy and disunity in recent days. Have you guys ever noticed, by the way, that questions, questions kind of reveal a lot about our hearts. They reveal a lot about our thoughts. They reveal a lot about us. Questions of immense importance, of immense magnitude, questions that can cause unity or disunity, harmony or disharmony. Did you guys know that about questions? A simple question can do all of that. Some monumental, life-shaping questions. Questions like, is cereal considered soup? Have you ever thought about that? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Are jumbo shrimp jumbo because they have a fattier diet? Is it proper to eat a cupcake whole or to take the top off and make it a sandwich? Would a store that just sells muffin tops succeed? And if so, what would you do with the bottoms? All of these are life-altering questions, questions that you should have an answer to. Well, that's not the question we're going to ask this morning. The question we're going to ask this morning is is even more fundamental. The question that I'll need your help solving, and I think I have an answer for us, by the way, is this. When is it appropriate to eat pumpkin-flavored food and drink pumpkin-flavored drinks? I know, you struggled with it. I get it. 
I'm going to weigh in on the conversation this morning. Some of you in the room right now, by the way, there's two groups of people right now. There's those with our pumpkin spice lattes sitting in our hands, and we are pro-pumpkin people. There's grace for you. And there are those that view those types of drinks as an abomination to the coffee drinking culture. You have a friend in me. Okay? I get it. I would present to you that the appropriateness of pumpkin consumption centers around three things. The month of October. That's the month of October. The first or the 31st. On Thanksgiving and only with Thanksgiving leftovers. Those are the only three times that it's appropriate for you to consume pumpkin. Now, if you disagree with me, you probably enjoy Christmas decorations, September 1st. <laughs> I'm just making all sorts of assumptions about you. If you agree with me, you're a holiday purist, right? Pumpkin spice lattes, October 1 to 31. Cornucopias, the month of November. Christmas decorations, December 1st to January 3rd, just to kind of give that breather, you know, so that you can get past New Year's and take them down before February. Praise the Lord. These are important life-altering, ground-shaking questions. Questions that can provide unity or disunity. Questions that can help us see different perspectives and different sides. And when we look at those types of questions, realize that in Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 11 through 18, Paul is, he's addressing, he's combating a potential drift towards disunity. And people had posed questions in the Ephesian church. They were asking all sorts of things. Is it appropriate? Should we? And here in our text this morning, what the Apostle Paul does is he steps into the conversation and he addresses a question, a question that is of far more significance than pumpkin consumption. It's a question about whether or not those who once were warring parties, hating one another, could be united together in the church. And what would it look like if those who once hated each other showcased peace and unity to a hostile, dividing world that lacks hope? What would it look like? That's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us in our text this morning. Remember from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul makes the case that all of us are on equal footing in our original sin before God. We are all rightly condemned because of our sin. But God acts and redeems us. And as he continues in our text today, the focus shifts from our individual response to the gospel to our communal engagement with and response to one another within the church. So as we unpack Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, what I hope we see is this one singular point, that as a disciple, I am God's masterpiece showcasing peace and unity to a hostile, divided world lacking hope. Building upon verse 10, we recognize God's redeemed us. He's given us new life through the gospel. And because of that, disciples are his masterpieces. Remember verse 10, that we are showcasing peace and unity to this hostile, divided world that lacks hope. In fact, if you look around today, there is most likely very little that would draw you to one another if it weren't for Jesus. 
So as we examine that point this morning, we're going to look at three simple truths. We're going to look at the truth that we are born in need of peace. We are united together through the peace of Christ. And we have access to the Father through the gospel of peace. Are we ready? Okay, let's go. The first truth we see this morning is simply this, that we are born in need of peace. Notice verse 11. The first thing Paul says is he says, therefore. Now, Gospel City kids, I know you know this. Just let your parents in on this secret. You know it, that when you see the word therefore as a student of scripture, you should always pause and ask the question, what is it there for? What's Paul referencing? What's he have in view as he is addressing and talking about a certain subject? So here in Ephesians 2, 11, he begins with, therefore, he points back to the prior 10 verses. He's reminding the Ephesian church, and he's reminding you, and he's reminding me that we were once children of wrath, that we were condemned in our sins, rightly deserving the punishment of hell because of the offensiveness of our sin to a holy God. He's reminding you of that by saying, therefore. He's also reminding you that there's this moment, remember verse four, where Paul says, but God, but God who is rich in mercy. Verse four is the hinge that your personal salvation story turns upon. God has, because of his richness and mercy, made those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ alive. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of your works so that no one can boast. And now as a redeemed disciple who has a relationship with Jesus, Paul affirms that you, that me, we are new creations. We are God's workmanship, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, I heard that the last two weeks in Cornerstone. I heard that the last two weeks with Pastor Micah. I get it, but we have to understand that before we can grasp what he's saying in verses 11 through 18. He begins in verse 11 by reminding us of all of those truths. Because if we forget that, then it won't make sense. And he tells us, now, as a redeemed disciple of Jesus, this is what your relationship with the church and with one another, this is what it looks like. He says, therefore, therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, in the context of Paul writing, he's addressing this division that's present. He's addressing a division between Jew and Gentile. I mean, the division wasn't based upon a simple marking in the flesh. The division was based upon a whole cultural worldview that clashed. And yet, somehow, some way, Christ does something to make it work. Paul continues, he says, you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were all of these things. Now, for us to get the perspective, we just kind of kind of get a hit pause and kind of get some catchphrases that the Jews of the first century would think about the Gentiles. Now just let this sit on you. Like imagine the person next to you thought this about you. The Jews would, would say this to one another, that it's not lawful to give help to a Gentile mother in her hour of childbirth, for that would be bringing another Gentile into the world. That's pretty harsh. 
If a Jewish girl or a Jewish boy wanted to marry a Gentile boy or a Gentile girl, the family had a funeral and not a wedding. That's pretty rough. They would say that Gentiles are created by God to be the fuel for the fires of hell. That was a Jewish perspective of a Gentile. Now, Gentiles were no better. They thought Jews were refuse, were the scum of the earth. They would enslave them and they would purposely do things to destroy what they held high. So just imagine that's the culture and the context in your local church. Think about it like this. Look to the person next to you. Make eye contact with them. It's going to be awkward. It's fine. Right? We can get through this. And just, and just imagine that, that you are a diehard Michigan Wolverines fan. I know. Just let it ride. Hey, no, 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 no. That's not this moment. That's not this moment. No, no. It's illustration. It's illustration. All right? You're a diehard Michigan Wolverines fan. So much so that you got the M on the forearm. You're coming into church. Like, you got the slacks with the whatever it is, an M or a, I don't know what it is. I'm not a Michigan Wolverines fan. You got something on your leg. You're wearing shoelaces that say Michigan. Every time you walk, it kind of squeaks the Michigan theme song. You got the hoodie on. You're wearing the hat. You got a pet Wolverine at home. How did you get that? I don't know. I don't know. Right? But you come into church and you sit down and church fills up. There's one seat left. And it's next to you. And that countdown hits and you're getting anxious. Like, man, is anybody going to sit next to me? And five, four, and you hear the door open and in rushes this guy. He just rushes in. He's like, where am I? And it sits next to you. Now, just imagine if that person that sat next to you was the Ohio State's mascot. I know, I know, it's hard. I mean, he's decked out. He's got, the, he's got the hat. He's got the hoodie. He's got everything. He brings his The Ohio State Embossed Bible, and he opens it up. Halfway through the sermon, The Ohio State theme song rings on his phone. He hasn't been here the last couple of weeks because he's an Ohio State fan. And he passes you a note on The Ohio State Stationery. What did Micah say the other week? Right? Halfway through, he sees you drinking coffee. He goes, man, he probably needs a breath mint, a The Ohio State Altoid. Man, it is over the top. <laughs> Would there be some, some tension? Maybe. And, and maybe you're not a football fan. Maybe for you, you just got to think through your arch enemy, right? It's Luke sitting next to Vader. It's SpongeBob sitting next to Bubble Bass. It's Superman next to Lex Luthor. It is your arch nemesis that is sitting right next to you. Can you see and sense the tension? Folks, that's what's happening in the Ephesian church. What's happening in the Ephesian church is that Christ has made these Jews and Gentiles new in him and somehow, some way, they have to be together. There's a sense of unity and peace. Paul calls our attention here in Ephesians chapter two and verses 11 and 12. He calls our attention and he reminds us of what once was true. It's no longer true, it once was true. And Paul gives an indictment to the Gentiles. He does so so that he can show us and the Ephesian church the degree to which the gospel resolves conflict. And not just conflict between us and God, but conflict between man and man. Paul presents us with a lack of peace that we're all born with. Notice in our text, in verse 11 and 12, he gives us five distinct elements of our life of what was true of us and the Gentiles before Christ's peace. Do you see it? 
He tells us that we are separated from Christ. We are alienated from God's people. We are strangers to God's promises. We are without hope and we are without God. Gospel City, all of us born sinners, that once was true of us before Jesus redeems you. By the way, all of those elements that you see there in verses 11 and 12, all of those elements are present still in the lives of so many in our community, so many in our workplaces, so many in our schools, so many in our families. And yet Paul takes the time, he takes the time to expound upon who we once were, who they once were, so that we might appreciate who we now are. It's been said that continual awareness of what we were and what we have now become will enrich both our thanks to God and our obedience. Paul presents us with the issue of sinfulness at the outset so that we might understand the depth of and desire for peace that the gospel will provide. The struggle that we all are faced with or are currently facing is to struggle with sin that separates us from God and realize that life comes from him and is best enjoyed in his presence. And the only solution, the only solution to our plight is peace with God, which comes from our proximity towards God, which only Christ can bring. And that leads us to our second point this morning. Our second point is this, that we are united together through the peace of of Christ. Notice verses 13 and six, through 16, and you see this beautiful pivot in Scripture. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it's a pivot moment, much like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 is a pivot moment. It's a moment that turns, and it's a massive turn for the Ephesian church. They're naturally hostile towards one another, but now, notice in verse 13, in Christ Jesus. Y'all got to pause for a second. Just let that sit for a moment. Warring parties, enemies of one another, but now in Christ Jesus. And do you feel the story starting to change? Do you sense Paul's motion starting to move? Realize that in Christ Jesus, we have something that's entirely different than we never had before. Church realized that in Christ, we are brought near. In Christ, we have peace. In Christ, we have unity. Through Christ, the dividing wall of hostility is broken. In Christ, he has created a new humanity through faith in him. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. And in Christ, we are a part of his body. Oh, church. Oh, church, do you see and understand the implications of those identifying statements? If you're in Jesus, then that's true of you. Oh, praise the Lord. All of those are true of us. All of those, by the way, are what unite us together. Those are the reasons that you can sit next to that Ohio State fan right there. Those are the reasons that warring parties can set aside their differences and come together in Jesus. These are what we rest upon when cultural conflict occurs. This is what undergirds our local body in Michiana. This is what makes 
the church of Jesus Christ different. Because we are no longer identified by what we once were. We are now identified as who we now are in Christ. Church, just, just let that sit. It's an amazing thing. That's what we now have access to, that in Christ we have these beautiful blessings. So let's pause for a moment and look at a few of them in more detail. We have unity and peace because of the gospel. Notice verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are united together through the salvation Christ offers. Notice the progression. You were far off. You were literally at a great distance. You were the one that was far away. Yet from that great distance, you were brought near by the blood of Christ. The picture here, by the way, the picture here is of you as the object being acted upon. In other words, you didn't pursue Jesus. You didn't pursue God. You're a warring party against him. And somehow, some way, through the beauty of the gospel, you're brought near by the blood of Jesus. Consider it this way. Have you ever read, wrote, ridden a roller coaster? Maybe it's Michigan's Adventure, Holiday World, Cedar Point, Disney. Yeah, okay, no? All right, just a few of us? Okay. Let me tell you about a roller coaster. It's great. Unless you take your six-year-old daughter on it. So last year, my family surprised us. My, my folks, hey, let's go to Disney. Great. So we all get in, uh, you know, not a car because that would be forever drive. We jump on a plane, head to Disney, drive down there, and we're just kind of enjoying the time. And Disney doesn't really have any like big roller coasters, so it's great for my six-year-old daughter, except, except for Aerosmith's Rock and Roller Coaster. Y'all familiar? You're cruising through the streets of LA to like retro Aerosmith music. If that was your era, then you're going to love that ride. Okay? So... I, I get my daughter, who's six, not tall enough, but we kind of get her in anyways. And it's right after we had already broken their trust by telling them the Tower of Terror wasn't that bad. So there, there's already this kind of counseling in the making is what it is. So there's already this moment when my kids are like, should we really trust them again? I'm like, yeah, of course you should. So we get in line and, and we're going, and the whole time you're watching and there's just count of three, two, one, boo, and off they go. And, and I'm going, okay, well, maybe Adelaide will enjoy it. And the moment we get locked in, I think, this is a mistake. <laughs> I, I don't want to do this right now. And I look over and Adelaide's going, it's okay. I'm like, it's so <laughs> And I mean, it starts, man. Like it just goes. So countdown and I look at my daughter and three, two, one, psh, and she's just, <gasps> and the only thing I can, I'm holding on to my one hand and I'm holding her like, don't fly out of this roller coaster, please, dear Lord Jesus. Like I'm just holding her. So every photo is me going this. <laughs> and Adelaide's just, <laughs> in that moment, here's what I realized. I could do nothing to make it go faster. I could do nothing to make it go slower. All I could do was be brought through. And as I get my melted daughter out of the chair and carry her out of the ride, I say, baby girl, I promise we will never do anything like that again this trip. <laughs> right? Because it's going to happen again. I, I'm smart enough father to know I can't make that promise, okay? I was the one being acted upon. And the same is true of you and I in salvation. I mean, we, we can do nothing. We, we can do nothing. I, it, it's not as if I wake up one day and say, man, you know what? That sounds great. I'm going to, with my whole heart, pursue that. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm gonna do. No, 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 friends. You are brought near. You are the object being acted upon by the blood of Christ. In our salvation, we are the ones that are responding to the work that he has done. And when we place our faith in him, we have access and peace because of it. Second aspect that we see in verses 13 and following is that in Christ, we experience peace that resolves hostility. Notice verse 14 and 15. It says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. I love what the Apostle Paul does here in verses 14 and 15. He uses an amazing word to describe the effect of Jesus' sacrifice. Do you see it? He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That word hostility is a word that carries with it the idea of deep-seated ill will towards another, hatred towards another, enmity towards another. What Paul tells us here is that that enmity, that hatred That ill will existed between God and man and between man and man. And that wall, that hostility has been broken down. It's been destroyed. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. You can't work hard enough to break down walls of hostility in this culture, in this church, in your family. No, sir. It's the blood of Jesus that does it. He's broken down the wall of hostility. For the Ephesians, this is, this is huge news. This is monumental. No longer do they have to reside in their hostilities towards one another or towards God. At this point, just, just pause and ask a simple question. If the gospel that brought you redemption through the blood of Jesus is strong enough, is strong enough to break down the walls of hostility between God and man and between Jew and Gentile, then is it strong enough to break down any walls that you still have in your life? The dividing wall between you and your in-laws? Jesus can break that down. The dividing wall between you and your neighbors? He can do that. The dividing wall between you and your husband or your wife? Mm-hmm. The dividing wall between you and that friend that hurt you? Yeah. You see, the, the hope that he gives, and what I hope you see is that through Christ, we who were once far off have been brought near, and in Christ we have the dividing wall of hostility between us and God and between one another broken down. But if I'm honest, man, I just, I'm fearful I'm fearful that we would quickly build walls of separation between one another because we would convince ourselves that it's easier to do that than to seek reconciliation with another believer. I'm fearful that our students, that our students would become so averse to addressing problems and communicating with one another that they would learn to be better wall builders and gospel communicators. I'm fearful that marriages within our church 
wouldn't believe that the wall of hostility between one another could ever be resolved and they would either live in silos, hurt one another purposefully or leave instead of addressing the hostility and through Christ and what he has done, seek reconciliation with one another. Church, the implications of this are huge, huge. That through Jesus, through the blood that was shed on the cross for your sins and for mine, the dividing wall of hostility between God and man has been broken and the dividing wall of hostility between me and another believer has been broken. In Christ, we experience peace that resolves hostility and that should permeate through all of our relationships and all of our interactions. Realize that we are united together, number three, as a body through the peace of Christ. Notice verses 15 and following. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Realize that salvation offered through the blood of Jesus brings warring parties together through the cross. Well, Paul's sharing here, by the way, in the book of Ephesians, here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, he's sharing this idea of reconciliation, but it's a unique idea that's really only found here in this capacity in the book of Ephesians. Most often when Paul or any other apostle is writing and they talk about reconciliation, what they're talking about is the bringing back into a right relationship between man and God. That's what reconciliation means, by the way. It's a $5 word. We don't use it a lot in our culture and vernacular today. So now you can. You can go to school on Monday, folks, and just say, hey, I've been reconciled. And your teacher will be like, oh, my gosh, A plus already on that math test. And you're like, math has nothing to do with reconciliation. I know. Reconciliation, it's a beautiful word. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is referring to something that's a double reconciliation, where the wall of hostility that Christ has broken down existed between me and God. That's the reconciliation he normally talks about all throughout Scripture. There's a second type of reconciliation that he has in view. It's the reconciliation between me and you as a fellow disciple of Jesus. Because if I'm reconciled and made right with God, but I'm still at war with you, then what good is the gospel of Jesus Christ? If it can't reconcile and bring back warring parties here within the church, then why would I think that it could break down and bring me back to God? Reconciliation, as you think about it, think about opposite ends of a magnet. I mean, when you're born, you're in need of peace, but you don't have it because you're not redeemed yet. The gospel hasn't enlivened your heart. It's like two opposites. You can never quite get them together. But then somebody shares the gospel with you. Somebody shares, opens their mouth and shares the gospel that without Jesus, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're following the course of this world. You're destined for an eternity in hell apart from God. But God, because of his rich mercy and grace, he has extended to you, sinful man, sinful woman, he has extended to you the offer of redemption through the substitutionary death of his son, Jesus. And as that offer of salvation is given freely to all who would believe, it's based solely upon God's grace, not your works. Because you can never do enough to put you back in right relationship with God. And the offer that we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is still true in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, that if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ alone, then you will be saved. And then all of a sudden, it's as if those magnets, which had been opposite poles, it's as if one of them has switched and they're brought back together in right union with one another. 
That's what Paul's talking about when he says you're reconciled. You're reconciled to God and you're reconciled to one another. You're brought back into a right relationship. You've been restored in a right relationship with God and now with fellow believers. Through Christ, he has broken down any and every obstacle that would prevent you as a sinner to come to know the salvation he offers and the reconciled relationship that he provides with the Father. Folks, salvation through the gospel reconciles you with God and with one another. What happens at the cross is what we see at the cross is the way to be reconciled to God, the way to be brought back into right relationship with him. It's our opportunity to be reconciled to the Father and reconciled to one another. The cross abolishes the law and it establishes the enduring path to be made right with God and with others. If that's what the cross does, then have you experienced that redemption through the gospel of peace? Have you individually experienced that Ephesians 2, 4 moment, the hinge that your personal salvation story turns? But God, who is rich in mercy, through his grace, extends to you the offer of salvation. And if you have, if you have, if you're sitting here and you're a disciple of Jesus, then let me ask, are you living united or are you living divided? Has the reconciling work of the cross permeated all of your life? Remember, as a disciple, you are God's masterpiece showcasing peace and unity to a hostile, divided world lacking hope. In Gospel City, may that be true of us as we see the city in need of a greater hope and we have what they need through the power of the gospel and the cross. That leads us to our third and final point this morning, which is simply this, that we have access to the Father through the gospel of peace. Notice how Paul closes this section, verses 17 through 18. He says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. On a historical note, it should be notated that in Ephesians, like the church of Ephesus, it never met Jesus personally. So when Paul says that he came and preached peace to you who were far off, realize the implication that faithful disciples carrying the beautiful message of the gospel on their lips with their feet came and brought good news. And that good news redeemed the church at Ephesus. It redeemed those who were far from him. Oh, church, would we be the same bearers of that good news? May we be the same bearers of the reconciling message that Jesus offers to the world. As a disciple, we have all been guilty. If we are disciples, we've all been guilty at one time of being far off. And yet, through the gospel of peace, through faith and belief in the gospel message, we are granted access in one spirit to the Father. I love that Paul uses that word access. It's a, an amazing word in Scripture. It's a word that most often carries with it this idea of being granted access to a king. Just imagine, if you will, that you got you know, a king sitting on his throne, crown on, royal robes, and somehow, someway, in some manner of action, you have been granted access to him. 
you are now ushered into the presence of the king. You don't deserve it. You didn't do anything for it. You're just given access. What Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, is that through the gospel, through belief in Jesus, we who were far off are now brought near. And because of that nearness, we have access. We're brought into the king's presence. Our faith has justified us. It has brought us into relationship and access with the Father. It's a word that's only used three times in the entire New Testament, twice in the book of Ephesians, once in the book of Romans. All of that is written by the Apostle Paul. And I think Romans chapter five gives us a better perspective of what the implications of that access are. In Romans chapter five, verses one and two, Paul writes and he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our faith justifies us before God and now we have peace through Jesus and in him we are brought into a body, the church that gives us access to the creator of the universe. So this morning as we, as we land the plane, the, the thing I want us to realize is that the greatest external expression of the inward transformation that has happened in the life of a disciple is being able to showcase God's peace and unity to a world in need. As we consider this, I want to put before us markers of peace and unity for a faithful disciple. Now, caveat, it's not an exhaustive list, but these are five markers of a faithful disciple that is bringing peace and unity to a world in need. The first would be that a faithful disciple considers others before themselves. Considers others before themselves. That's Philippians chapter two. That our example is Jesus who considered us before himself. A faithful disciple bears the fruit of the spirit continually. That's the book of Galatians. That a faithful disciple strives for diversity and gospel community. That's what we just looked at in Ephesians chapter two. That a faithful disciple gathers with other disciples consistently. That's the book of Hebrews. And that a faithful disciple serves the body with the gifts God has given him. That's the book of Ephesians. Realize it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a start. And here's my hope, Gospel City that if you are a faithful disciple of his, that over the next week, you would be challenged to take steps, to take steps in embodying what it looks like to be a faithful disciple, showcasing God's peace and unity to a hostile, divided world in need of hope. We say it often, that you are God's plan A for the redemption of your neighbors, of your family, of your coworkers. He's placed you there for a purpose and a reason. And would it be to showcase his peace and unity? The world needs it. And we need to be reminded of it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us this morning to see that peace and unity can be a present reality in our world. And that, Father, it's because of the work of the cross that it's so. So Lord, challenge our hearts. 
Thank you for Gospel City Kids being here this morning. Thank you that what they hear each and every week in Cornerstone is what we hear each and every week in here and that once every once in a while we can gather together as a family and open God's word together. So Lord, would you challenge Gospel City Kids, their hearts? Would you challenge their parents' hearts? May we be faithful disciples this week. See you, Father, we pray in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit.